0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, are going to be having a chat about a very famous battle from ancient Greece, the Battle of Marathon. This was... An immensely important battle too, not just very famous, but also very important. Uh, It was fought between uh, Athenian and Persian troops during the Greco-Persian War. And while you'll you'll definitely have heard of marathons, of course, the the running races feature very prominently in things like the Olympic Games, Um, and and these marathons, they trace their origin back to this battle, but there is so much more to talk about, so much more to get across uh, other than just uh, the the running race here. And, And in fact... While reading about the the Greco-Persian War more broadly, I I decided that I actually wanted to cover more than just this one battle from from the war overall. So, I mean, there are so many crucially important events from this period in history. I I want to talk about a couple of them. Next week, you can expect an episode about the the, the very famous Battle of Thermopylae as well. You you will have heard of that one. Uh, It happened a couple of years after the Battle of Marathon. So we'll talk about Marathon today. Next week, we'll be back to talk uh, talk about uh, Thermopylae. Uh, but yes, as for Marathon itself, this battle, it took place after the Persian Emperor Darius I, Darius the Great, attempted to stage an invasion of the Greek world. Now, much of Greece was ready to capitulate to the Persian Empire uh, at the hands of Darius. Uh, the Persians, they seemed overwhelmingly strong. They seemed, I mean, practically, practically invincible. But the Athenians... They weren't gonna just roll over and accept their fate here. So when the Persians landed near their city, the Athenians mounted a spirited defense, and this defense resulted in the Battle of Marathon, an event of enormous importance in not just ancient Greek history but also in in world history more broadly, as uh, as we'll get to. But before we begin, I want to thank the alert listeners who have suggested I look into this battle, as well as you know others from the same period, Thermopylae and uh, and, and whatnot. So. Listeners like Frank Sherwood, Nash Kelly, and and Tony Ziegle, thank you very much. Cheers so much to you lot. Good on you. Had a great time reading about all this, and uh, and obviously you can look forward to an episode of the Battle of Thermopylae next week. So anyway, for now, we'll start with the Battle of Marathon. Here we go. Let's get underway. So going all the way back here, going all the way back to 490 BCE. So this is the usual reminder that as we're heading back to before the common era BCE, we'll be counting years down as time goes on, not upwards. Obviously, you know, these days go 2021 into 2022, back then. BCE, we go 490 BCE into 489 BCE as time goes on, so on and so forth. So all the dates in today's episode are going to be BCE. I'll save us some time by just saying 490 instead of 490 BC every time. But every, all the dates are here in today's episode. Uh, I guess except for one at the end, which I will point out. Um, all of them BCE. So you know you can uh, you can remember that as we're going on, and of course that years count down. But uh, I guess actually we should go a bit further back than 490 BCE, because 490 was when the Battle of Marathon actually took place. But the reasons that the battle took place go back a little bit further, obviously. We can instead start the story with that bloke that I mentioned before, Darius I. Darius I of the Persian Empire, sometimes called the Achaemenid Empire. Um, Now, this bloke was an immensely powerful ruler, uh, as I said, sometimes called Darius the Great. He had conquered the pants off a huge part of the ancient world. And at its height, the Persian Empire stretched all the way across the Middle East, all the way through to India, right through through to, you know, modern day Turkey, even across into uh, Europe, into what today is, you know, Bulgaria, Romania, parts of Greece, that sort of thing. And... Uh, the important part, the, the, the part of the story that we're going to focus on today, however, is focused mainly around modern-day Greece and modern-day modern Turkey, around the Aegean Sea, right? So an important thing to remember is that at this point in history, uh, much of Anatolia, where you find today's Turkey, uh, it was filled with Greeks, Greek-speaking uh, people, Greek culture. And the Greeks that were living in Anatolia, they were known as Ionians, Uh, And it turns out that they weren't that keen on being part of the Persian Empire. And so in the early 490s, in 499, they staged a rebellion, a revolt against Darius, against the Persians. And obviously, they weren't the only ones. There were plenty of revolts and rebellions going on throughout the Persian Empire. But the Ionian Revolt was, well, I mean, it was unsuccessful. I don't ruin the ending there, but it was unsuccessful. But it was also very important. It spurred Darius into action after the Ionian Revolt had been fought over the five years that it was fought. When it wrapped up in uh, in four ninety uh, four four ninety three, if you want to choose, if you, there were decisive battles that effectively ended in four ninety four, the fighting continued a little bit until four ninety three, but it, it was more or less over by four ninety four. Um, and it it made Darius sit up and take notice of the Greek world and think, well, I better actually get on the front foot here and and start doing something about. Uh, you know what could be potential threats to my empire here on the other side of the Aegean Sea, because other parts of the Greek world came to the aid of the, the Ionian Greeks who were over in in, in modern day uh, in in Anatolia, modern day Turkey. Um, most notably, Athens, uh, as as many of the Ionian settlements had actually begun as Athenian colonies. They many of them had much in common with Athens. Some of them were were democracies, just like Athens was as well. And uh, the the fact that Athens and, and other areas like Eritrea uh, got involved in fighting the Persians as part of the Ionian Revolt. This was a big part of what effectively kicked off the Greco-Persian Wars, the, the, this larger conflict that I mentioned in the in the intro to the show. The Battle of Marathon, the Battle of Thermopylae, many other battles as well. They're all part of the Greco-Persian Wars, and these wars have gone for about 50 years all told. Anyway, even with the aid of Athens and other areas, as I say, like Eritrea, Darius put down the Ionian Revolt in 494. The Greco-Persian Wars began in favour of the Persians well and truly, but Darius still saw the rest of the Greek world as a threat to his empire. The the Persian Empire, it's young. It's unstable. Darius is uh, constantly having to put down revolts and rebellions, so he decides to get on the front foot, as I say, when it comes to the Greeks. He crosses the Bosporus. He expands into Europe. He reconquers Thrace. And, uh, and forces some very powerful regions like Macedon to become vassals, client states of the Persian Empire. And by 492, just a couple of years after the Ionian revolt has been put down, Darius has shown the Greeks that he's not mucking about. And, that, you know, there's going to be further bloody expansion and conquest and all sorts of stuff into the Greek heartland. Uh, this is this is almost certainly inevitable because Darius, well, for a couple of reasons. One, he wants to conquer Greece, wants to conquer this part of the world. But two, he actually wants to get revenge Against uh, Athens, against Eretria, for their uh, what he sees as interference in the Ionian revolt. But I want to clarify before we go any any further, I want to clarify something very important here because we t- I talk about you know Darius wanting to conquer Greece, and I want to talk about what that means, what what the word Greece actually means at at, the, at this point in history. Today, obviously we think of Greece, it is a country, it's a nation, it is a centralized government that rules over a, a you know this part of the world, the Greek speaking part of the world. There was no Greece in that sense back then, not in the way that we think of it today. It wasn't unified under a central government. It wasn't just one nation of all the Greek-speaking people. No, it was quite the opposite. Throughout the entire history of ancient Greece, it was never really unified at all, except for one very bloody important uh, uh, point in its history, under Alexander the Great and his empire. But that's 150 years away from what we're talking about today. And at this stage, during the Greco-Persian War, what we know as today as today's greece is a collection of independent city-states all with very distinct identities they they have certainly they have cultural and, and linguistic similarities but they weren't even close to being one unified political unit in fact they're often at war with each other they they were often fighting amongst themselves and uh, a lot of these greek city-states a lot of them just didn't get on at all there was this this undercurrent of of tension and hostility that sometimes blew up into full-on out-and-out conflict and and even war. So plenty of infighting, plenty of mutual dislike between these these city-states, despite the fact they have a lot in common culturally, linguistically. And uh, in the wake of the Ionian Revolt, as Darius is kind of eyeing off Greece, the Greek world, um, in terms of wanting to maybe conquer it and and have it absorbed into his empire— he kicks things off by sending out emissaries. He sends emissaries out throughout the, throughout the rest of the Greek world, after conquering Thrace, Macedon, whatever else. In 490, he sends out these diplomats to all these independent city-states demanding submission. He demands that they submit to him and his mighty empire with a gift of earth and water. These, this is the traditional uh, token of submission and a ton of these city states they just roll over they actually just capitulate they give the emissaries the symbolic earth and water and they say all right well look you've got us dead to rights and we're not going to resist you so you know long live the Persian empire i guess they've seen what Darius is capable of the the lack of any real sense of unity or cohesion between these fractured city states means that they're not confident they'll be able to you know they'll be able to defend themselves from a Persian invasion and uh they also realised. I mean, there's this sense, as I say, that Darius was in it for more than just conquest. He wanted revenge for the Ionian Revolt, and many of these city states didn't want to get in the way of this blow because he was looking to, you know, carve this path of destruction through his enemies. Now, his his quest for revenge against the Athenians, as I say, Athens was one of the more powerful city states, uh, along with Sparta, obviously. Um, the Athenians. Uh, were, they had a big target on their backs because of the fact that they'd aided the Ionians during this revolt. It had really pissed Darius off, let me tell you. And he was determined to punish the Athenians and the Eretrians as well for their contributions to the Ionian revolts. But the Athenians, they were going to take it lying down. They weren't just going to lie down and accept their fate. When Darius's emissaries arrived demanding their earth and water, the Athenians responded by putting the emissaries on trial sentencing them to death. And then, I mean, Athens had a couple of different methods of execution back then. Famously, they sometimes made condemned criminals drink hemlock. Uh, That was what happened to poor old Socrates, of course. But they had a different fate in mind for the Persian emissaries. Seeing as these emissaries had come for earth and water, the Athenians decided to use an execution method that involved throwing these, these now condemned criminals down into a deep pit to die, either from, you know, the impact of being thrown into the pit or just from starvation. And so before executing them in this way, they said to the emissaries that they could have all the earth that they wanted if they f- and they would find it down the bottom of that pit that they'd be chucked into. So threw them in the pit, that was that. The emissaries are you know, killed in that way. And as you might know, in Sparta, very famously, of course, the Persian emissaries met with a similar fate. They were chucked down a well, although they weren't put on trial beforehand. And so I guess the Persian emissaries did get the earth and water that they wanted, although I don't know if they were able to bring it back to Darius in one piece. Um, Interestingly, by the way, uh, Sparta, after having killed these these two emissaries in this way, they actually sent two of their own volunteers. They sent two volunteers to the Persians to be executed. Uh, by way of, uh, you know, to, to make up for, for the death, uh, the deaths of the emissaries, I guess. So uh, I don't know how much that cooled Darius's wrath, to be honest, but, you know, the, the Spartans were at least trying to play fair. Anyway, the bottom line is this. Many Greek city-states, they gave in, they submitted to the Persians, but others didn't, including, most notably, Athens and Sparta, two of the most powerful Greek city-states. And Athens and Sparta, in particular, they were not hugely polite about their refusal to, uh, f- refusal to submit, which obviously only pissed Darius off all the more. Darius is out for blood. He wants to conquer Greece. He wants to have his revenge upon Athens and Eretria for the, uh, for the Ionian Revolt. And so as a result of this, he sends off a naval contingent, a fleet of ships, which sail from island to island across the Aegean Sea. Obviously, you know, if you look at any map, you can see the, the Aegean Sea full of islands that, that are between modern-day Greece, modern-day Turkey. And the Persians, they make their way from island to island, except instead of, you know, a pleasure cruise, getting boozy, all that sort of stuff like you would these days, the Persians fight and kill and pillage and plunder and have a great time. Uh, uh, take, you know, as they have this, not really a pleasure cruise, a murder cruise, I guess, across the Aegean until they arrive finally in Eretria in mid 490. Once they arrive there, they lay siege to the city, they capture it, and they burn it to the ground uh, once, uh, once they've taken it, which is not a good result uh, for the Greeks, particularly not for the Eretrians. Of course, they've had their comeuppance for their part in the Ionian Revolt. But now with that out of the way, the Persians, they continue on. They sail south from Eretria to Attica, which is the region where, uh, where you'll find Athens. And they land there in Attica in a small bay, the Bay of Marathon. This was their chosen landing site. It wasn't too far away from Athens, a little over 40 kilometers as it happens, fancy that. But the Athenians, after hearing about the Persian landing—or you know, maybe even attempting to land here in, in Marathon—they were very quick to respond. They dispatched troops to the to the plains around the bay to confront the Persians as they landed. However, even with this very quick response, the Athenians—they're in a terrible spot here. They've been they've been able to muster and deploy about ten thousand troops, right, which is the the bulk, if not their entire army. On the other hand, the Persians have landed. Admittedly, a small fraction of their overall forces—just around twenty-five thousand soldiers—and uh, then have a further one hundred thousand oarsmen and sailors aboard six hundred ships. And these blokes could also conceivably fight as a reserve. You get the oarsmen off with their—I mean, with their—not a—not a conventional military weapon, the oar, but still bonk someone on the head with that. And they're going to be in a fair bit of a uh, fair bit of trouble there. So the Athenians with their 10,000 troops against 25,000 regular standing army from the Persians on, on top of 100,000, you know, potential reserves, they are severely, severely outnumbered. Now, they do have something going for them. Their troops are of a much higher quality. These are hoplites. They're citizen soldiers. They're heavily armoured. Um, they are well, very, very well equipped. Uh, but having said that, this hopeless numerical advantage that the Persians have over them is is really a bad start. And it only gets worse from there, because about a thousand of these Persians are mounted. They're cavalry, and the cavalry would fare very well in a pitched battle against the Hoplites if the Hoplites made any kind of offensive movement. Uh, if the Athenians made any tactical errors on the battlefield in deploying the hoplites, the cavalry would be able to use their, their mobility and crush the hoplites, rip them to shreds before they even you know managed to, to close the distance on their enemy there. So, I mean, there is more as well. It it gets even worse for the Athenians on top of just this actual position there that they have, numerically speaking, and the way that their troops match up against the, uh, the Persians. Because if we zoom out and look at the broader picture for the Athenians, it, it is... Again, it's only it only gets worse and worse. The Athenians have essentially sent every single soldier they have to Marathon to try to defend against this Persian invasion. And this creates a whole new range of very exciting problems for them, because they're facing a relatively small contingent of Persia's overall forces. So if there is a secondary army that can loop around and attack Athens from, from the west— their goose is cooked, mate. There is no one left to defend the city, right? This, the city would be lost immediately. Additionally, an Athenian defeat at Marathon would be the end of Athens altogether as well because there would be no army left to defend the city if, they, if they're if they defeated by the Persians then and there. That's it. It is It is very much just an all or nothing situation for the Athenians. And perhaps for that reason, they attempted to call on other Greek city-states to aid them. And most notably... They entreated Sparta for aid, which is very interesting because this, you know, oligarchical, militaristic city-state that Sparta was didn't get on too well with democratic Athens. The, the two had fought very bitter conflicts in the past and, of course, would continue to fight these conflicts in the future, the Peloponnesian War and what have you. I mean, you know, Sparta and, and Athens were... They were not friends. But all the same, Athens sent off a a messenger to implore Sparta to come and help them fight off their common enemy in the Persians. But it was very bloody unlucky timing, right? The Persians landed at exactly the wrong time for the Athenians when they're asking the the Spartans for help here. The Spartans were in the middle of a major religious festival called Carnea, And during Carnea the Spartan army was completely forbidden from fighting, right? They They just weren't allowed to fight during this festival. So the Athenians were told that the Spartan army, sure, they would come and they would reinforce the armies of of the Athenians and, and help fight off again this mutual enemy they have in the Persians. But they weren't going to do it for 10 days until the full moon rose, right? So that would signal the end of the Carnea. That would be the moment that the Spartan army was allowed to fight again. And until then, the Athenians were just out of luck and basically just had to wait. Right, so some very bad news. I mean, you know, the Spartans intended to reinforce the the Athenians. They they wanted to come. They wanted to come and fight, but they couldn't for religious reasons for ten more days. Luckily for the Athenians, other searches when they went and asked other around other city states were, were more fruitful. For example, uh, the Athenians were joined by a thousand more hoplites from the city of Plataea. This uh, this contingent, it has to be said, it, it boosted Athenian morale a fair bit. Um, it made them feel like they weren't alone in this fight and even though it was a you know relatively small number just a thousand extra hoplites they were very very glad to have them of course every extra uh, every extra sh- every extra shield and every extra spear was going to be of great use in in trying to head off these uh, these persians but here's what's really interesting about the conflict because even with all of those terrible things that i've said about the situation that the athenians faced once the Persians arrived at Marathon, you'd think, you know, with this overwhelming numerical advantage, with all the factors that were the, that were running against the Athenians here, the Persians had been in a great spot. But once they landed, once their troops had, you know, disembarked from the from the ships and formed up on the plain, they just sat there. They didn't do anything. They didn't launch an attack. They just kind of stood around and stared at the Athenian army that had already come and taken its position in Marathon. For days. And I'll tell you this, this suited the Athenians down to the ground. Because the longer that the Persians waited, the longer that the Athenians had to sit there and prepare for this battle, the, the better it was for them, the more likely they were to have Spartan reinforcements. The Athenians and the Persians stood there on opposite ends of the Plains of Marathon for Five days, just hanging out, picking their noses and staring at each other, waiting to see what would happen. And, you know, the Persians, even with their numerical superiority, even with this, you know, overarching threat of invasion and and potentially annihilation for the the Athenians, the Persians just didn't do anything. I mean, why? A couple of reasons here. A couple of reasons. The Athenians because they arrived so quickly to marathon after the Persians landed, because they were able to arrive and secure defensive positions so early on, they managed to to make sure they had a pristine, a perfect spot to defend themselves from, right? A powerful defensive position which they fortified. The fortifications are still there today. You can go and see them. And these fortifications, these positions that they took up, blocked the Persian exit from the plains of marathon. It meant that the Persians couldn't Incur further into Athenian lands, further into Attica to gain themselves a better position without going through the Athenian army. And as I say, they also had a very good reason to delay the battle for as long as possible because of this, the promise of Spartan reinforcements in 10 days that have one of the most powerful Greek militaries at their side. And so this very heavily incentivized, incentivized the Athenians to stay put. They didn't want to start the fight. They had these, these, these perfect defensive positions. They didn't want to give up and they just want to sit there and wait. They had also. Very ready supply lines. They're only forty kilometers away from their from their city. They the army isn't going to you know starve at any point. Meanwhile, on the other side of things, the Persians are are feeding what one hundred twenty five thousand mouths. It's not an easy thing. They're going to they're not going to be able to keep this up forever. So, at, I mean, you look at it through this angle, and all of a sudden, the Athenians have got every reason to stay put and just wait to see how things develop. On top of this, however, it gets a little bit better for the Athenians because. The Greek hoplite, right, you probably imagine what the Greek hoplite looks. It's very, you know, a very famous ancient military unit. They typically wore heavy armor, used a spear, long spear and a shield, and they would arrange themselves in very tight-knit defensive formations known, 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 that was known as the phalanx, right, phalanxes. Now, despite being a very powerful heavy infantry unit, one of the weaknesses of the phalanx was to, was to mobile cavalry, right, while marching. Unless they were able to take up a defensive position against cavalry, the cavalry would be able to outmaneuver them and attack them from an exposed rear or an exposed flanks. Even with these big long spears, the phalanx wasn't able to defend itself from all sides. And so if a, if, if a cavalry unit could loop around behind a phalanx of, uh, of, of Greek hoplites, they could tear them to bits. And this was the risk that the Athenians ran in deploying their army. The heavy infantry was powerfully, powerfully set up to fight defensively, but on the offense, the Persian cavalry was a huge threat to the uh, the Athenian hoplites there. So the hoplite was best in hand-to-hand fighting, close quarters combat, where particularly in formation, it could shred through other foot soldiers. But while maneuvering, particularly on the offense, it was vulnerable to cavalry, which as I say, could wheel around a phalanx to, to attack an undefended rear or flank. And so the Athenian hoplites sitting up there in these defensive positions they've got, virtually untouchable. They're protected from, from infantry. They're protected from archers with their with their heavy armor and their shields. And the cavalry will have to charge uphill into waiting spears, right? Which is just an absolute disaster scenario for, for any cavalry unit. So the, the moment that the, the hoplites start to march, they're vulnerable. But before that, right, the Athenians, if they just stay put, the Persians can't come near them. So as I say, every reason for the Athenians to sit and wait. Despite the tenuous position they had on a broader scale, being hopelessly outnumbered, having no reserve army, this all or nothing situation where their city would fall if they lost this battle, their position at Marathon actually, in defiance of the numbers, was actually quite a good one. And the Persians knew that the Athenians had a great position. They had a fantastic defensive position. They knew their infantry was no match for the Athenian hoplites and they knew that they couldn't put their cavalry to best use while fighting the Athenians from this defensive spot, these defensive spots they had. So, it gets a bit worse for the Persians here because... On top of all that, right, the marshes in and around the Marathon curtail the mobility of the cavalry. They've got this 125,000 strong force that they have to feed every day. Don't forget about that. And they're hundreds of kilometres away from home. But they had to do something. They couldn't just land on the beaches at Marathon, sit there for a week and then head back home. They've got nothing to show for it. No, the impetus was on the Persians to act because the more time that passed the worse their position became and the better the Athenian position became as well, particularly with the, uh, the threat of the, uh, the reinforcements from Sparta. Now, unfortunately, I'm sorry to say, we don't actually know what it was that finally started the battle. After five days of these armies just staring at each other from across the plains, eventually the fight began. And there are conflicting reports from historians, even at the time, as to what it was that eventually kicked off the, uh, the the fight here. Now, our mate Herodotus, right, the bloke with the sunnies, you know, he's the logo of the podcast, Herodotus himself wrote about this battle and his account leads us to believe that the reason that the battle began was because the Persians decided that they needed to redeploy their cavalry. They recognised that the cavalry weren't going to be able to be put to use properly on the plains of Marathon. They couldn't fight into these defensive phalanxes. They couldn't fight on this marshy ground. And so, according to this theory, the Persians began to load their cavalry back onto the ships, which is a very time-consuming, a very difficult manoeuvre, not one that's easy to reverse either. Now, you're thinking, why might they have done this? Why have they taken the cavalry off the field? Because the, if you follow this line of reasoning, they were thinking that what did they what they wanted to do was put the cavalry back on the ship, uh, back on the ships, sail to another landing spot. Have the cavalry disembark and then move up to flank the Athenians, completely undermining their defensive positions and the, the capability of the hoplite phalanx. once they're fighting on, you know, fighting on, on different flanks, and then the Persian infantry is able to move in and and harry them and harass them from from you know, and they're fighting on two different fronts here. Now, unfortunately for the Persians, right, due to how time-consuming this would be, loading all the cavalry up, sailing the ships, redeploying them, marching the cavalry off to fight these Athenians in their positions. This gave the Athenians the perfect opportunity to attack the remaining Persian forces. It's not like the Persians could, you know, just chuck a ewe on the ships, whack all the horses back on land, and that was that. No. If this is the case, if we follow this line of reasoning based on what Herodotus wrote, if the Persians did seek to redeploy the cavalry, it gave the Athenians the chance to advance on the Persian ranks, safe from the arrow fire behind their shield walls and their heavy armour, confident that the Greek heavy infantry would destroy the Persian light infantry. However, there is another theory um and again we don't know one way or the other which one is 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 true there is theory that the persians ultimately just attacked knowing that they simply had to the further delays would only make things worse for them and so when push comes to shove they had to be the aggressors whatever the reason whatever the reason the battle began it began on the 12th of september 490 or maybe on the 12th of august 490 we're not 100% sure which month month it took place because our estimation relies on the spartan calendar Uh, which might have been a month ahead of the Athenian calendar. We don't know. But anyway, on the 12th of something, 490, either September or August, the Battle of Marathon began. The armies drew up into formation and made ready to do battle. And once the armies had drawn up into their battle lines, the Greeks sought to advance as swiftly as possible, to close the distance on the Persians and put their heavy infantry to good use. Now, many reasons for doing this. If the cavalry is still on the field... They don't want to get torn to pieces while they're advancing. As I say, the hoplites were vulnerable to cavalry attack while moving. And so they wanted to avoid that uh, that situation. But the other thing is, the Greeks have got no archers. They don't have any range support to cover their advance on the Persians. And they know they have to close the distance on the Persian infantry as quickly as possible, get to the hand-to-hand fighting the hoplites are so good at, and remove the Persian ar- um, archers from the equation as swiftly as possible. So this Greek march towards the, the Persians is something that was very risky, but also very necessary if the if the Greeks wanted to gain the upper hand in this battle. And it seems that, right, if the cavalry was indeed on the field, it may have been off the field, in which case this next part is not relevant, but it seems that if the cavalry were, was still on the field, it was completely ineffective. Whether it was the marshy terrain that uh, prevented them from being u- useful, or whether it was the, the fact that the Athenians reinfo- heavily reinforced their flanks... As they marched towards the Persians, the, the the Greek ranks, the Athenian ranks on the on the flanks were eight men deep, whereas in the middle they're only four men deep. So they had double the number of uh, troops uh, fighting on the flanks there to perhaps, perhaps again perhaps protect from uh, cavalry uh, harassing them on their on their flanks there. Whatever the case, right, the Greeks, the Athenians, and their and their Plataean allies, right, they advanced very very swiftly into the Persian ranks, and this absolutely bamboozle the Persians. Because the first thing the Persians do is they get all their archers to draw their bows and just fire volley after volley after volley of arrows upon this incoming mass of Greek hoplites. And the archers were completely ineffective. The Persians weren't used to this. They weren't used to fighting against such heavily uh, armoured opposition. And usually their arrow volleys would thin and winnow out the ranks of any opposing army, but it had basically no effect on the Greeks. They used their shield wall and their heavy armor to deflect and absorb the arrows, and soon enough, once the Athenians and, and the Plataeans were at close range with the Persians, the, the Persian archers did nothing. They couldn't fire on the uh, on the Greek forces anymore because they'd hit their own men. They might, they might shoot the, 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 the Persian infantry in the back instead. So this, this opening move from the Persian army here, firing these volleys of arrows that was, again, supposed to thin the ranks of the Greeks, it did nothing. It did absolutely nothing. And this was a huge blow for the Persians because, as I say, they weren't used to fighting in these terms. They weren't used to fighting against such heavily armoured individuals that could such, so easily absorb these arrow volleys. And, of course, it got so much worse for the Persians once the Greeks actually came into close quarters combat and were fighting hand-to-hand because, as expected, the Athenian and the Plataean hoplites, they tore through the Persian infantry. Hand-to-hand fighting was the greatest strength of the hoplites, and despite you know the overwhelming numbers of the Persians, they just died in their thousands to the spears of these Athenian and Plataean hoplites. However, I did say that the Persians had an overwhelming numerical advantage, and before long the sheer numbers of the Persians begin to it began to take its toll on the Athenians on the Plataean forces. They were eventually broken in the center due to sheer numbers. I mentioned that the the Greek forces had reinforced their flanks very heavily. They had twice as many men out on the flanks as they did in the center. And despite the fact that the, the Athenians, the Plataeans, are fighting just, just tooth and nail, and they're doing such a good job of, of, of tearing through the, the light infantry of the Persians, there's just too many of them. And eventually, in the center, they are overwhelmed. The Persians begin to press the attack in the center. They begin to push, push the, the Athenians, the Plataeans, back in the center. However, on the flanks, it's a very different story. The flanks held and the Persians had put some of their worst troops on the flanks. So the fact that the the Greek flanks were so heavily reinforced and the fact that the Persian flanks were so weak meant that the Greeks just destroyed them. The Greek flanks annihilated the Persian levies on either flank and and they routed. The Persians routed and they fled back to their ships. And what happened, what happened next after this is a pivotal moment in not just this battle. It secured the, the ultimate outcome of this battle. It's true. But a pivotal moment in not not just even Greek history, but potentially world history. Because the immediate obvious thing to do after you've routed a foe in a battle like this is to pursue, is to give chase and you know, try to run them down as they're fleeing back to wherever they came from, whether it's their ships or their base or their camp or whatever, right? But the Greek hoplites on either flank, they didn't do this. They pulled off an absolutely devastating maneuver. That sealed the result of the Battle of Marathon, and there is still debate today as to whether this move was deliberate or not. It's thought that, broadly speaking, it probably wasn't. Most military historians consider it to have been probably beyond the reach of uh, of the Greek training and and, and military stra- strategy and tactics at the time. Um, but the fact that they did this, even as a spur of the moment thing, it, it I mean, whether it was planned or not, as a as a maneuver or or is just something that happened, doesn't really matter, because what it did, it, it, it changed the course of history. The, the Greek hoplites that were on either flank, after having routed their foes, rather than chase them, both flanks saw that the center, the Greek centre had broken. They turned 180 degrees inwards and started marching the other way back towards the way that they'd come. Why did they do this? Because the Persians, as I mentioned before, were giving chase to the broken Athenian centre and had advanced too far forward. This meant that the Athenian flanks were now behind them, and they were sandwiched between the centre and the flanks that had now closed to envelop them. This double envelopment manoeuvre meant that the Athenian centre it rallied, and now that the Persians were almost completely surrounded... They routed and they began to flee. So, after having broken the centre, the fact that they were then pressed, the Persians were then pressed between two Greek armies, meant that the Persians realised they had lost the battle and they began to flee the field back towards their ships. They had taken huge losses already, and now with this manoeuvre, they lost their nerve and they began to flee back to their ships. Except, remember how I said the plains were, were filled with marshes? many of the Persians ran straight into these marshes where they drowned as they tried to flee, further compounding their losses and making it an even more devastating blow for the Persian army that was there. The Greeks, meanwhile, the, the, the Athenians and the Plataeans, they, they pursued the Persians all the way back to their ships. They managed to capture seven of the, uh, of the Persian warships before they, uh, before they cast off and left. But most of the Persian fleet, as I say, it was, it was, it was able to leave intact, but not so with its army. They lost 5,000 troops. A full 20% of the Persian forces had died during the Battle of Marathon. Very heavy losses indeed for the Persians. But what about the Athenians? You're not going to believe this. According to Herodotus, the Athenians lost 192 troops in addition to 11 Plataeans. 203 Greeks were killed as opposed to 5,000 Persians. How was it it possible for the Greeks to pull off a stunning victory? Have the Persians lose 20% of their troops to the Greeks 2%? How, while being outnumbered 2 to 1, was this stunning Greek victory possible? Well, the absence of effective cavalry certainly helped, but there are a few other factors as well. The Athenians, as I say, were better equipped, they were more used to hand-to-hand fighting, they were unaffected by the Persian archers thanks to their shield walls and their heavy armour. But historian John Lazenby suggests that there was a different reason, a much more important reason, that the Athenians and the Plataeans were successful. And that reason was courage. 10,000 Greek hoplites charged into twenty. 5,000 Persian troops under a barrage of arrow fire, and they fought furiously to defend their homeland. And then, when the Greek flanks routed the Persian flanks, they didn't take the easy option to pursue routed foes. They instead turned to save the pressured Greek centre and assure themselves of victory. And the victory at the Battle of Marathon was a spectacularly important one, as we'll come to in just a minute. The Athenians and the Plataeans, they buried their dead on the plains of Marathon, and even today you can go and visit the burial mounds that that entombed these warriors that were that died over 2500 years ago. But after they buried their dead, they realized that the Persian forces may have boarded their ships in order to regroup, sail around to the west of Athens, and stage another attack on a a, a city that had been left undefended. And so as a result, the Athenians marched at top speed back to their city, which is, you know, quite a distance to travel at, at, at great speed, again, just over 40 kilometres. And with the city re- uh, newly fortified, the Persians had no chance of a successful attack on Athens, and so instead returned to Anatolia. The Persian threat had, for now, been pushed back enormously successfully. But I said that the Battle of Marathon was immensely important for the Greeks, and not just for the Athenians. This is absolutely true, and here's why. It showed, it demonstrated to the Greek world that the Persians could be resisted. And ultimately, they could be defeated. The Battle of Marathon was the first time that the Greeks had roundly defeated the Persians. And it proved that the Persian Empire was not invincible. And that Darius could be beaten. All of those city-states who had capitulated to Darius' emissaries with the gifts of earth and water, they're now thinking, well, can the Persians be beaten? Can the Greek world stand up to the invaders from the east? And and Athens, it demonstrated that yes, they could. The Greek world at this point in history is still finding its feet. Athens is a young democracy forging a new path. And at Marathon, it resisted one of the greatest powers on earth at the time. The battle bolstered Greek courage and morale in the coming conflicts against the Persians, and it set them down a path of determined resistance and ultimately Victory, and while what I'm going to start saying next might sound like a ridiculous overstatement, there are plenty of historians who stand by this. The Western world owes its very existence to those Athenian and Plataean soldiers who fought at Marathon. Now, why? How can you possibly justify a statement of, 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 like that? Right. Well, let me let me explain. Had the Persians won at Marathon and destroyed Athens, the rest of the Greek world would have very likely fallen as well. And the Greek Golden Age that followed Marathon and followed the Greco-Persian Wars would never have come about. And the classical period of ancient Greece, which is broadly and correctly considered to be the cradle of Western civilization, Western philosophy, art, politics, culture, science, and so much more, would never have come about. Whatever your view on Western culture is, you cannot deny that it was seminally influenced by ancient Greece, and particularly classical Greece, this period of Greek history that began with the Greco-Persian War. The very basis of Western culture is classical Greek culture, the culture that developed and flourished in the wake of the Battle of Marathon. And of course, there were plenty of other battles that the Greeks had to fight and win in order to see off the Persians, and we'll get to one of them next week as we talk about Thermopylae. But without the victory at Marathon, there wouldn't have been a Battle of Thermopylae. The Persians lost the Battle of Marathon, but of course the war wasn't over and Darius licked his wounds, began to amass an even larger army to renew his efforts to conquer Greece, and we'll talk about what came of that next week. And in truth, you know, as much as the Battle of Marathon was a massive victory for the Greek world, it was actually pretty insignificant, really, in the large in the grander scheme of things for for the Persians, it was a pretty insignificant defeat for Darius and his army. This is a massive, powerful realm that spans thousands of kilometers from modern-day Libya all the way to India from Oman to Romania, you know. They lost what, 5,000 men. This is a drop in the bucket for the Persians, but the Battle of Marathon was the beginning of something huge for the Greeks, as we'll talk about in future episodes. And It's interesting to think about the words of John Stuart Mill when describing this battle. The Battle of Marathon, even as an event in British history, is more important than the Battle of Hastings. Without the victory at the Battle of Marathon, there wouldn't have been a classical Greece, there wouldn't have been the influence that Greece would have on... Roman civilization, the Roman Empire, and once you start to talk about a world in which the Roman Empire doesn't exist, well, the Western world would look very, very different indeed. And with the Western world's dominance, for better or worse, over much of world affairs during the second millennium, and indeed today in the 21st century, well, all of a sudden, talking about the Battle of Marathon being a world-changing event doesn't doesn't come off as quite as ridiculous as, as it may have when we first started talking about it. Anyway, before we finish this episode, I want to talk about one more thing, of course, and you probably know what it is. I want to talk about the story of the modern marathon, the running race, and how it traces its origin back to this historical event. You probably know the traditional story. After the Athenian victory at Marathon, a runner called Pheidippides ran all the way from Marathon to Athens, a distance of just over 42 kilometres, as I've alluded to throughout the episode, to announce the victory, and then after shouting, We win! once he arrived, uh, he killed over and died. Now, This story is often attributed to our mate Herodotus, uh, but it doesn't appear in his writing at all, in fact. Uh, He does mention Pheidippides, although in a a slightly different circumstance. He talks about Pheidippides. He names him as being the runner who ran from Athens to Sparta, a distance of about 240 kilometers, uh, to request their help at the Battle of Marathon. Uh, Apparently, Pheidippides covered this distance in about two days, which is quite incredible. Uh, And while he ran, according to Herodotus, he was visited by the Greek god Pan himself. Herodotus was known to include some uh, rather less than believable details in some of his writings every now and again. Anyway, Pheidippides was probably a real bloke um, who probably was a real messenger, although whether he ran 240 kilometers in two days and was visited by Pan is, well, I mean, look, that's less verifiable, but it's thought broadly speaking, that he had nothing to do with Marathon itself and uh, wasn't at the battle, didn't run back afterwards or anything else like that. And that this traditional story that we all know today is an amalgamation of the story of Pheidippides running to Sparta and another element of today's tale. As I mentioned before, after they won the Battle of Marathon, the entire Athenian army raced back to Athens at at top speed in order to, you know, defend the city from a, a potential naval incursion from the west, which was no small feat quickly marching 42 kilometers in heavy armor just having, you know, just after having fought this, this battle. So still, you know, very impressive feat for the Athenian army to pull off. Doesn't have quite the same ring to it as Phidippides running 42 kilometers and killing over dead, but still very impressive all the same. But it seems that at some point later, perhaps even 500 years later, right, the first time that a single runner is mentioned as having run from Marathon to Athens was in the writings of Plutarch, which, as I say, came five centuries after the Battle of Marathon. It looks like Plutarch seemingly combined Pheidippides' run from Athens to Sparta with the Athenian army's march from Marathon to Athens. I don't know if he did it because he was confused or just because it made a better story, whatever the case, but in all probability, Pheidippides never actually ran the legendary marathon that gives the race its name, and instead it was actually an entire army of 10,000 or so Athenian soldiers who ran the distance. But, if the legend is true, and if Pheidippides did run the original marathon, you'd have to think that the Athenians, well, they probably would have been better served if they'd had Eliud Kipchoge with them there instead. Because Kipchoge, of course, is the current marathon world record holder with a time of 2 hours, 1 minute and 39 seconds, set in 2018 CE in Berlin. And what's more, Kipchoge didn't keel over dead after setting it but that's it that's all she wrote today sports fans that is the story of the battle of marathon i do hope you enjoyed it because there's plenty more where that came from next week we'll be talking of course about the battle of thermopylae and uh, a little bit more classical Greek history for you. I love getting across all this stuff and it's nice to have these episodes that are kind of linked to one another as well. So thank you very much to the alert listeners who are getting in touch with suggestions like this. Great to get across it. Now, boring housekeeping stuff this week, though I do suggest you have a listen because we've got some big changes. Some changes have uh, have come to the Half House History Patreon and I want to talk to you about them. So net, of course, contact form there, uh, old episodes, subscribe on, on, um, on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, whatever else, and uh, the merch shop, blah, blah, blah. But I want to talk about the Patreon. I have launched a new range of exclusive Patreon-only merch. If you are a signed-up member of Patreon at the $5, $10, or $20 tiers, nothing is changing for you except in three months' time you'll receive a piece, or multiple pieces, depending on your level, of Half House History merch in your post at no extra cost to you right I, I this is merch that I am so excited to get into people's hands. I absolutely love it. Uh, it involves a picture, a drawing that I commissioned from Jessica from Inkland Customs. It's an amazing piece of art. It shows Herodotus right the, the the bloke I've talked about today, you know the bloke in the Sunnies, who's uh, the, the logo of the podcast. reading a story to a little child uh, 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 kid versions right of Wu Chan, Mansa Musa, Moctezuma the I, and Frederick the Great. It is an incredible piece of artwork and I'm so excited to get it into the hands of, uh, of, of Half Us History fans around the world. So if you are already a signed, uh, a signed up, paid up member of Patreon uh, at the five, 10 or $20 tiers, you'll be getting that in your mailbox in about three months at no extra cost to you. If you are a member of a lower tier or perhaps you're not a Patreon supporter just yet, you can still get this merch delivered to you again at no extra cost. There's not an extra fee or anything you have to pay. It's just for normal Patreon support. This is just something you get on top of other bonuses that you get there. There's nothing extra required from you for just being a member of the five, ten, or twenty dollars tiers. Now, you know, I don't want to sell out hugely and you know push the patron too much, uh, but I, I do really, really at least recommend you go and have a look at this, uh, this merch that is going to be available to patron members. I am so proud of it. I think it looks fantastic and I'm really excited to get into the hands of fans around the world. So if you've been considering supporting the show via Patreon, there's never been a better time to do it again. Anyone at the five, 10 or $20 tiers will be snagging this for no extra cost. Um, and uh, again, after three months of uh, of support on Patreon, you'll be able to get your hands on that. In addition to all the other stuff, uncut episodes, early access to shows, uh, show notes, all sorts of nonsense there. So head over to uh, to Patreon.com/slash history and uh, if you want to support the show that way, now you're going to get something tangible for it. I've talked in previous episodes how you get diddly squat. You just get you know the the uncut recordings with all my burps and farts and everything. Now you actually get some exclusive patreon only merch and i will never put this this will never be available anywhere else i'll never put this in the public uh, merch shop the only way you can get your hands on this incredible piece of art from uh, from jessica at inkland customs and i mean what an incredible piece of work she's done really if you need anything done from her like that i know she uh, she has commissions available uh, at times so if you need any of her work done have a look at uh, inkland customs because she's an incredible artist. Um, but if you want to get your hands on uh, on that merch, the only way to do it is through the patrons. So again, sorry for the big sell at the end of the show, but I wanted I want to let people know that's available for them if they uh, if they want to get across that. And uh, there's never been a better time to sign up and uh, and support the show. So thank you to all the patrons doing that. Anyway, that's enough of that nonsense for now. We're going to close out the show. See you next week with the Battle of Thermopylae. Looking forward to it. Until then, leaving you with a question that i thought of myself it's a little gag right it's a little gag that i came up with about marathons and i do hope you enjoy it because i'm very not as proud of this as i am of the merch but i'm still pretty proud of this one here here it comes i know you have to train to condition yourself before running a marathon but what's the best type of conditioning to use is it perhaps classical conditioning